Do you find the days going past by? They always do. <laughs> like we get here and we know we've just got over three weeks. Yeah. It seems like, wow, a whole three and a half weeks. Yeah. So you spend the whole first week with that impression yeah. into the second and by the time you're halfway through your second week you go, what, only ten days left? <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost like you go directly from we just arrived to from we're about to leave. Yeah, yeah. We feel it now, we came for three weeks and now we feel it's getting closer to leave now. Because there's a routine, you feel it, the days go by very fast. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting to reflect on the notions of time that we have. Because we have these little machines that go blink blink and tell you what time, the date and the everything. Yeah. You can even have the seconds flashing and it seems just so regular, yeah? It doesn't go fast, it doesn't go slow, but it just goes. <laughs> and then we get, in terms of personal experience, thinking of time, it's always a relative thing. Yeah. And we create the notion of time. Like in, in, sen in the sense of our experience, all we have is here and now. Exactly. <coughs> so we create the past based on memories, we create the future based on memories too, and projections into the past, and it's all a fabrication. Mm -hmm. and I liked it the other day when Lombard was talking about 40 years, I don't know if it was here or if it was back in Temple, he was telling people that he's the last 40 years have gone by very quickly since he was about 40 years old and started Amaravati he's been retired for almost 10 years and he says he feels like he's used his life very well in terms of practicing Dhamma so you get one notion, you get one notion of what 40 years are like years and years of practice and finally the result is what we see. But then he says, it's gone by in a flash, really. So I'm 47, I can, 40, 40 years, I've lived for a little bit over 40 years, and I can say, yeah, it does feel like it goes by fast, when I look at it from now. But then he says, when people ask him to please live until 120, <laughs> he says, oh, that 40 years seemed like an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about 40 years, they're supposed to be the same thing, right? But even just there, the, it seems like two very different things you're talking about. You wanted to ask something? So I was going to discuss the 32 parts of the body meditation. <laughs> so I memorized them. And, uh, so then I started putting them in piles. And so uh, that was not too difficult, uh, luckily, because I think because I actually visualized most of those things, actually seen most of those things in real life. But um, so that was okay. But 
the disidentification with it is <coughs> obviously like seeing the piles, but then I'm like, but I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I guess two notable things occurred from the, the just so far what I've done. One is that um, certain things come are, are very strongly, I can see them very well. The skull, uh, my bones pretty well, and um, like hair, head hair with the scalp. Mm -hmm. Not so much all the skin, mm -hmm. but like I could, my, my skull, my brain, and my scalp with hair coming out mm -hmm. was very vivid. Those were the, I think, the most vivid things, and that bones were pretty vivid. Mm -hmm. um, you know, getting into like the juicy, gurgly bits was, I found pretty repulsive, so I didn't tend to <laughs> hang on to the, you know, I didn't go to those too much. Um, so one thing that happened, which is a, a little personal, but I think it's informative, so I'm going to share it. It's, you know, <coughs> so when I started doing it, I was laying down because um, I had just like taken a little rest. And then I thought well, as soon as I kind of came to, I decided to start going through the list. And so then I started going through the list and I'm going through my body mm -hmm. to see the parts. And um, before I put them out in piles, so I did that a couple times, and um, so it's a little embarrassing, but I, I was debating whether I should say this, but I'm going to. Um, so I suddenly there was a sensation that I would associate with like, like maybe desire, not like a strong desire, but like maybe what I would associate with with um, if I were having desire for another person, like that kind of physical feeling though, nothing really strongly mental. And it what occurred to me at that moment is I suddenly saw the absurdity of that because I was really seeing, I could really, I had kind of broken the, most of the parts down. And the idea of like being intimate with another 32 parts was, I laughed, it made me laugh because it was really like, it was completely absurd, the idea of having, and because I mean, like, I don't, I haven't done, you know, I don't do that in 22 years since I was in Anagarica, so I mean, that's not something that's a part of my life, mm -hmm. but um, it was like, <coughs> the true absurdity of, of that, the kind of grossness of, of that would be, it was really apparent to me. So I thought, I see now why this practice is what they recommend for like a monk who's, you know, having trouble in that area. So that was one thing. That lasted just a brief time. Then when I was up and putting it into piles, um, and I had kind of figured, I'd done that a couple times, and then I kind of narrowed down that if I, if I really just focused on my skull, the brain, and the scalp, I could see I could dis I could see that as my how much I'm attached to those things as me, my face, my hair, my at this part of my body, and uh, and so I I did I did a few extra things I like imagined worms eating away at, at it and you know the skull kind of was just sitting there grinning and uh, I don't know I kind of played with it a little bit and it. And then I could really, when I went back to like 
putting it back on me, I kind of felt a little bit like, yeah, I don't really need, I, I, I don't need to identify, I don't know, I felt a little bit of detachment, a little bit, so that's my story. It grows, yeah. it grows, because the detachment is the natural result of seeing it as not self. Like this carpet is not me, I'm not attached to it, or any objects here. We might conceive a sense of possession of an object, if we like it or use it or something, but not in terms of me identifying with, with the actual object, as much as with the processor. But what you develop, what the Buddha gave as a simile to that sense of not-self, he was talking about taking a bunch of dead leaves from the forest floor and burning them. And just turn to ashes, right? Do you feel anything about leaves burning to ashes? That's just leaves doing what they do. If you burn them, they're turned to ashes, that's it. Let the wind carry the ashes away, or whatever. And says that's. Seem, he seemed to be indicating that's how he feels about how an, how an awakened being was really completely abandoned. Any sense of relating to the physical body as self feels about the body. Whatever happens to it, happens to it. What's all the fuss about? <laughs> it's like, why would you even make a fuss? So, but that's a very, like, to actually relate to the body like that, that's what just comes naturally <coughs> with practice. So what you did is good, and, I mean, you're just looking at it and sort of noticing the nature of it. Like, you talk about sort of worms eating up the brain. If I went to the butchers and bought a brain, a cow's brain, a pig's brain, whatever brains they sell, and put it out in the garden here, we could set up a webcam, CCTV or something, and just film it, see how long it lasts before it disappears. It wouldn't take very long. Flies would land on it, hence the maggots. Some animal would come, and most likely a carnivorous animal would get to it and make away with it. And that's the nature of it. So sometimes, some, some people, we all have some body part that sort of for some reason we connect with. And after a while, like say if it's bone, some, some of the forest monks who develop a lot of this, they'd sort of have a, one of the bones in the finger, they'd sort of relate to skeleton really well and then go through the different bones and eventually end with one. <coughs> And it, it, it becomes so much, it becomes, there's this reflection going on, but because the body, the mind in meditation is always kind of alternating between resting and investigating, because you can't just investigate all the time, otherwise you need a break. And the mind would do that naturally, staying with the bone, it would start delighting in the whiteness of the bone, until the bone part of the white bone disappears, and they, they stay with something white, and then that turns into a nimitta, and they they're off into jhana or something. And then they can come out of that and go back to the actual reflecting on the nature of bone, which is more of a, an active process. So for, for the mind to be able to go that still, it's got to be really happy. It's interesting how you can develop that real sense of 
happiness and bliss just looking at something. So it could be a skull, it could be a scalp, it could be a brain, it could be whatever. So that's a very that's a very surprising subject of meditation. But the cherry on the cake is that sense of live freedom from self. And you do it often enough and next time the hairdresser messes up, messes you up <laughs> and you don't come out with the haircut that you want you won't relate to it the same way anymore. So it's like, yes, bloody hair, so what? <laughs> that was the whole point of the Buddha giving this meditation. The whole purpose of the Dhamma is to help lead towards liberation. And it does it. So yes, what you're doing is good. You're describing, you're describing is good. Just keep at it and be playful with it. As long as it's within the realms of reality, like worms on it or stuff like that, just to sort of make it a bit alive. But that's what would happen to it in nature. Yeah. Also, being playful with it makes it interesting. So you're more likely to do it if it's interesting and you're enjoying the process of that meditation. Yes. I, I am just on the same question. What instruction would you give in terms of practicing the aesthetic parts of the body? And when do you think one should practice that? Mm -hmm. how, how would you sort of take up as a practice? Uh, the last time wasn't recorded, was it? We <laughs> <laughs> spoke about it last time. <clears throat> it's a good practice to pick up and start working with. Not everybody can do it. So it does tend to undermine lust. So you mentioned you can understand why monks <coughs> who are struggling with lust would use that as an object of meditation. I remember talking about it with some people and they said, well, actually, actually I'm married, I have a life with a partner, I'm not going to go there, I'm afraid that Lust is going to get wiped out of the picture. <laughs> so, hold on to whatever you like. <laughs> so some people are just not ready for it. Some people are just afraid. They have, they have, they conceive fears around what's going to happen if I start messing around with my perception of the body. So not everybody's ready for that practice, but if you are ready, if you're interested in using it, I'd recommend anybody starts working with it. Because even though it undermines lust, you cannot underestimate the power of defilements. And uh, doing even just a few, a few sessions of practice on something like the 32 parts, and there's no way you're putting your lust at very much risk. You have to be at it for some time and really bring some strong insight into it to start uprooting this kind of thing. But I mean, we've been in samsara for uncountable lifetimes cultivating lust, so it's not going to go in 10 minutes of meditation. <laughs> so yet, and I'd, I'd recommend anybody sort of plays around with it. If you're interested in, in that aspect of it, and undermining, starting to sort of undermine what lust is based on, delight in this body, 
and that's not the only thing it's based on, that's part of it. That's a good way to start, but also just because it's, there's so much self invested in the body. And wherever, whatever impermanent condition we identify with is going to bring us grief. Because <coughs> we're identifying with something that's not going to last. So we're necessarily going to get upset once it changes and goes and ceases. This is the nature of the body. So to practice, to spend some time looking at its nature, nature and asking, my, asking oneself, well, how can I come to terms with it, with the fact that it is impermanent. So we're here now, but we won't be forever. How could I, how can I bring that notion into the picture, that this body is impermanent? Other than going, yeah, well, I'm 47, I'll be 48 next year. Okay, I get it, and move on. That's just thinking, it's not insight. But insight in terms of this body was born and we grasped hold of it and now it's my body. Notice, notice when something happens to the body, how you feel about it. And you notice there's so much suffering involved with our relationship to this body, whether it feels in good shape or not, whether it's healthy or not. The kind of emotions that come up when, when anything happens to it, you get sunburned and you start thinking, oh, I might get cancer. <laughs> you fall, did I break a bone, did I sprain an ankle, do I need to go see a doctor? Very often if something happens, like, should I go and see a doctor for this? And you can see the kind of the worries, like, what if I don't look after my body? As am I going to die because I neglected looking after it? And we often don't realize behind that thought is a lot of anguish. If I get, I'm in Thailand, so I think of getting malaria, and one strain of malaria goes straight to your brain. And it's not very compatible with life. <laughs> so I can see what happens if I'm in the forest and I think, well, one of the risks of living in the jungle in a tropical country, I could get malaria and it could go to the brain and I could die from it. And just watching what comes up in the body, if I really, if I really allow, to allow it to just sit there and see what kind of emotions come up around it. And then this practice allows, allows you to sort of really relate to the body as it really is. So I explained how you walk Jongram and Nilbai, or you can do it sitting, but just sort of take one body part after the other and then start putting it out on the floor in front of you. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, like a bag of skin, flesh there, looks like a, all that meat at the butcher is just not arranged, arranged nicely in rows and sliced beautifully, it's more like a mass. And then all the tendons and ligaments, all that chewy stuff when you get a steak that isn't cured properly, that's what it is. <laughs> so that, and so this is what comes out, like for me, I, I, when I do this, I really like to let the mind play around with it. What is it? What are tendons and stuff? How can I relate to it other than this, yeah? The bits that I don't see under the skin and that hurt when I sprain a joint or something. 
That's like uh, when I'm eating a piece of meat and there's a chewy bit, it could be a big vein or an artery or something, but half the time it's a piece of ligament or something. And my relationship to that is dislike, yeah? It's chewy and stuff. But that's not the way I... If you ask me about my tendons and my ligaments right now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to express dislike. <laughs> Mostly we, we relate to, like if I asked you about your tendons and ligaments, your reaction would be, what? <laughs> we don't relate to them. We don't see them, we don't think of them. So what we're doing here is we are pretty bringing them up into consciousness, these body parts that are behind the envelope, behind the first five. Yeah? So that's why they give the first five as a meditation object to novices. It's like here, this is, in a way, you could say it's the beginner's kit. It's the first five out of 32, but at the same time, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. That's what, that's, what, that's what I see right now. I don't see the other 27 parts. How does the middle way play a role in this? In what sense? In the sense that you don't go to an extreme, or is it...? What extremes are you thinking of? Like, some people can get uh, depressed and things like that by looking at that, uh, for the 32 parts, as you said, you know, so... You know, people talk to always about the middle way, so... You know, this uh, can we detach? Is there a way of detaching it from my own self, or is it okay to to say this is what is going to happen to the body? In other words, it is what is going to happen to the body, but it's it's a little that would be a little bit the same in in attitude as the difference between when when we say I'd like to be able to let go of this. But what we really mean is, I'd like it to go. Mm. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the vipavapanha part of it. It's like wanting to get rid of it. We're not trying to get rid of the body. And we're not, necess we're not trying to develop disgust around the body. It tends to happen when we do this, because we're not used to look at the body in ways that, are, that we actually even consider the fact that, no, it's not entirely beautiful. So, asuba means not beautiful, it doesn't mean disgusting. Mm. Disgusting is part of not beautiful, but not beautiful also includes neutral. So what we're doing is we're cultivating perceptions of the body that you cannot call beautiful, so sometimes they are disgusting, but sometimes they're just, they're not disgusting, they're just, they just happen not to be, you can, just cannot call them beautiful, like when she was talking about the skull, you look at a skull, it's not disgusting. It's not really beautiful unless you're an anatomist and you get high on, <coughs> and you get high on aspects of anatomy and you go, ah, such perfection and whatever. But if the average people just look at a skull, you open a National Geographic magazine and look at the skull of Lucy, I've yet to hear someone say that's disgusting, but I've yet to hear someone say, oh, what a beauty. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy was gorgeous and nobody does that. So, that's interesting, that you're basically considering looking at the body in a way that you're not considering it beautiful. So if, this is, if, this is, if you understand this as you're going into this kind of reflection, that doesn't tend to bring up Vipavatanha. 
So you're leaving the tanha part because your interest is, is not into cultivating attachment and lust to the body, but you're not trying to get rid of it or say it's anything bad, you're just trying to look at the nature of it. So the, the middle way is, is right there. And it does happen that some people push it too far. There was uh, Ajahn Yanadamu told me that when he was a younger monk, he was in Tulong up in the north, and he came across this monk in one of the forests he was setting up, setting himself up to spend some time in, and he was really, I guess he maybe he figured he had very strong attachments to food and he had found as a solution to def defecate in his bowl lid, put that right next to him as he's having his meal. Now that's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Even if you try not to be disgusted, I don't think you can. It just happens to be really, really gross and disgusting. And he started eating his meal thinking that that would cure him of attachment to food because he's constantly contemplating what becomes of food. But he became disgusted. And he did it often enough that it started having a, a reflex that every time he saw food, disgust came out, even when he didn't do his bowlid thing. Now he's got a problem with food. <laughs> and it was apparently, I don't know about the follow-up, but I imagine it must have been very difficult to recover from that. Because the, the memory works in ways you don't choose. And if it makes very strong associations, then you have to, you have to live with those associations. You can if you have the wisdom and you can sort of let it be what it is in consciousness, but it's still not an easy thing to live with, an association like that one. But that's not what we're trying to do. We're really the only purpose is to, what is the body? Like what happens if I was really able to take my liver out here, put it on the corner of the rug here, and then we keep talking? What would happen? A bunch of you would stop looking at me and look at look at that yucky thing on the floor. Someone would say, would say well, it's spoiling the rug, because it's all bloody and juicy. <laughs> What's Ajahn V going to say about the rug? <laughs> Do I go, it's me you're talking about? <laughs> Don't talk like that about me. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I'd be, I, I'd agree, yeah. Now I've got to clean the rug for Ajahn V. So already there, why would I clean the rug? Because it's dirty. That's what we're talking about. That's the nature of the body. So, okay, I don't put it on the rug. I fold up the rug and I put it on the concrete here. Then I've got to clean the concrete. Because we don't call that clean. We call that dirty. No matter which way you take it. If I take my liver out and give it to you and say, could you hold this for me, please? You wouldn't take it because it's all slimy and gooey. That's what we're talking about. It's just noticing not necessarily that it's disgusting, although you could say that, but this is not clean, venerable sir. <laughs> Do not ask me to hold this. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's most likely what you would say. So that's what we're trying to bring up into awareness. And then what we're developing is the ability <clears throat> to look at the body. And if it appears beautiful, to say, well, looking at the body like this, a sense of finding it beautiful, come the perception of beauty arises. But then we can look at it, you can say, oh, but this same body is actually made out of these 32 parts. So you're not, you're not creating anything, you're just looking at it differently. If you look at it from that perspective, it's not beautiful. 
and you realize how perception conditions your relationship to the world, really, to everything. So it's an exercise you're doing with the body that you can act, then later you can transfer what you learn from that to everything. So which are the perceptions that, that allow you some freedom from suffering? Or, sometimes you realize no matter what the perception is, it's all, I just want to leave it all, no matter whether it's beautiful, ugly or neutral. And we get a chance to do that if we're finished our work in this lifetime and then finally the body dies, we can go, okay, thank you, done with that. <laughs> I don't want another one, thank you. I can I control my muscles. Mm -hmm. That um, that's partly why I have the perception of identity with my body. Because mm -hmm. there is, and then I think, well, that must mean because I think I'm in my thoughts and my volition and my emo. And then of course I am. I, you know, it's hard not to feel identified with thoughts and emotions and volition and so forth. So are there similar practices to disentangle identity with those? Yeah. And well, it's difficult to take a, uh, an emotion out and put it in front of you on the yeah. rug, right? So, this is where Lompa is talking about consciousness. Everything arises in consciousness. So, in, like in terms of, he has this really, really good exercise, which I cannot recommend enough that you do. I'm sure you've heard about it. I don't know how many, how many of you have actually heard it and said, hey, I'm going to try that, and actually tried it, because it sounds so simple. And uh, most people I speak with go like this when he's talking about it and never use it, is intentionally thinking a very, very simple thought. I am Asoko. He goes, I am Sumedo, or Ajahn Sumedo, or I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm breathing. This is a rug, I like it. Whatever, it doesn't matter what you're choosing, but preferably something that's really plain and neutral and simple. So I'm a Soko is good enough for that. And then intentionally, and so I sit here and I, I don't say it out loud, I think it. I is a thought. M is another thought. A Soko is another thought. And if I'm, si if I'm sitting here doing that, I can notice I, thinking I, so then the thought, there's, there is that thought. And then before I go am, I'm paying attention, so I'm, there's consciousness, but there's no, there's no thought between the two there. So that is, you're experiencing, you're, you're basically instructing yourself, educating yourself in terms of this is what consciousness with a thought arising in consciousness and it ceases and before am arises there isn't nor I nor am but you're conscious so that's consciousness without thinking so you know thinking and you know non-thinking absence of thinking 
it's not anything hocus pocus or, or anything difficult to do. It's just we never pay attention to that usually. We just go Amasoko <laughs> very quickly and think that that whole thing is one thought and don't even stop to notice the gaps. So this state of mind where there's awareness without thinking, you can find in other moments as well. Did you turn off the gas or the electricity at home before coming? And before your mind goes yes or no, you have to think about it. You have to kind of ask yourself. And there's a, a little moment there where you're not thinking. Do you wear reading glasses? Are you asking? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Small print I do, yes. So sometimes you pick up a thing, small print, and you go, where are my glasses? Sometimes the thought comes up, or sometimes you're just like, you're not sure where you put them. And that moment where you're like, huh, you just realize you didn't know where you put them, and there's no memory yet of where you put them. You can't turn to the table, to the desk, to the wherever. You don't know if you left them in this room or the living room or where. And the moment you don't, you realize you, you forgot, you don't know where they are. There's a moment where the mind goes like that, is kind of perplexed. There's a moment there where there's no thought. Or, as you, I'm sure you've done very often, you sit at your house and look at the sunset or the sunrise above the lake. And sometimes it's just so beautiful. You're in awe, and that moment of awe, there's no, there's no thought for a moment. But again, we don't pay attention to it. So it's actually happening all the time, we just don't notice it. So Lompal's, the, the exercise Lompal recommends of intentionally thinking something is to educate ourselves to noticing. Consciousness is here all the time, so I'm aware of what I'm thinking, and then between the thoughts, just notice that there isn't a thought, but there's think, there is awareness. And little by little you start paying attention to thoughts and then non-thinking. In terms of, there's always consciousness, and sometimes in consciousness there's thinking, sometimes in consciousness there's no thinking. There's no self in consciousness either. You, cannot, you, you can try to make consciousness me, but you can't. So it's not personal. Hmm? So consciousness if you do it, it means you're thinking again. But in terms of just experiencing consciousness, how can, you how can you slap a self on that? I can't. I've tried. But every time I try, I just end up producing a thought. It's a thought. I am consciousness. I can say that. I'm consciousness. But then I can also say I'm very short. And I'm a dog. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's true. So when you're experiencing that, you sort of you realize that I'm not making this up. You realize that you're conscious when you're. So you, now I could say I'm talking, and then sometimes I don't talk. So there isn't talking all the time. The same with thinking. There isn't thinking all the time. And then when you start doing this, you notice that it's really the way you relate to something that arises and ceases in awareness. So your emotions, try that with an emotion. It doesn't, doesn't matter what emotion it is. Find one, notice it, and then keep an eye on the landscape inside until it's not there anymore and go like, huh, so now it's not here. 
And then in terms of being here and now, you say, well, say anger arises, and you go, huh, so now, this is what anger feels like when it arises. So this is really using thought, using language in a way where you're not taking ownership of it. You're not creating a sense of self in the relationship to the anger through words. Because if I say, I'm angry, I'm creating that sense of I am angry. But if I don't think it, all there is is anger. And we're so used to, we're so I'm so used to thinking I am angry that when anger arises, it's kind of an assumption that comes together. So, how about I use thought to cultivate the, a different perception? So, it's the same as with the body. Well, how about I put the body out, the 32 parts out on the side of the road, on the carpet, on the tiles, whatever it is, just for the sake of cultivating a perception of the body, which is in self. And though using language, you can do that with thinking, with emotions, with feelings. So you can't put them out there on the rug to look at them, but you can take that step back from them, where you're relating to them in terms of an object or something, a sankara, arising in consciousness as an experience, here and now. It lasts as long as it lasts, and then it ceases. And then you notice, once it has ceased, so consciousness is still here, but the anger isn't here. So this is consciousness without anger. You do that often enough, you start really appreciating the sense of this consciousness. It's like a space in which these things arise, and then they just dissolve and they're gone. But the space is always there. <coughs> is that helpful? Yeah, I mean, I, I do that a lot. I, I do get that part. It's the consciousness part. So I was just kind of backing up the steps, right? Okay. There's the body, then there's the feelings, emotion, and thoughts and stuff I find easier to do. Mostly, I mean, not all yeah, the time. Yeah. And then, but, so... So then there's awareness, so how, how am I not awareness? You know, I still feel like I'm watching, I'm the knower, I'm the, you know, so it's, yeah, there's... Um, well, can you notice the difference between watching something, knowing something, and thinking, I am knowing, I am watching? That's why I recommend this exercise yeah, about thinking, like, because we have a really yeah. ignorant and blind relationship to thinking, yeah. as long as it is unexam unexamined, we don't even pay. We don't even notice when it's think. Like I can walk around and have a thought that puts me in a mood. I'll notice the mood, and then I have, sometimes I have to backtrack to notice it's because of this thought that the mood arose. But we tend to just assume that thinking is thinking is me. It's what it's what we're all about. But it's not. Thinking arises. It's not always there, and it arises based on it's based on perceptions, it's based on moves, on feelings. So there's a circle of, of uh, what the Buddha calls vipalasa, a sort of distorted views, where thoughts condition perceptions. So we can think about the body in a certain way, which would lead us to perceive it. And like if we think of it in terms of the 32 parts, we start perceiving it as the 32 parts. And then if we, the perceptions give rise to emotions, and the emotions induce us to think a certain way, and around we go. 
but usually we're just sort of holding on to the next one that arises and we keep going out and, and we're never kind of stepping back and looking at that. Emotions tend to be, like especially stronger emotions, we tend to notice, oh that's an emotion and it's not always there. Perceptions, you may say, well I used to not like them and then I heard about how they suffered in childhood and now I'm not so judgmental about them. So maybe sometimes we're aware of perceptions shifting there. But thought? I think therefore I am and we take that as the holy word. But actually thought is not self. So that, that exercise that Lung Pao suggested is just invaluable. And it is one of the easiest things to do. All you need to do is I am sitting and just never mind the content of the thought as much as really bring awareness here and now and then go I and you can even notice before you brought up the I there's not a thought but you're here and then I and just do that very often and just play with it and challenge yourself can I really appreciate the difference between consciousness of thinking and then consciousness between thoughts and, just, and play with it, play with it and just uh, challenge yourself how well, how well can I notice this, how often can I notice this how obvious is it or not and just keep looking and try this, try that you do that and soon enough you'll be looking for because you're setting yourself up for it, you're looking for moments when you've got an eye out for moments when there isn't thinking and then something happens, or a deer comes, and you and then it's a deer. But before it's a deer, there's a like, and you notice there's no thing, there's no thought there. They come in afterwards, and then after the thought, after the thought, it stops again. You're just looking at the deer, but there is no thinking. So this really helps us notice thinking, and then you go back to the thirty-two parts. And you notice wondering about awareness, so there I go, that's thinking again. Does the Buddha talk about why they're linked, like awareness and the body? Like, you know, maybe they're not for someone who's enlightened and can go and sit in the clouds, but in general they're linked. Well, that's a very interesting perception, actually. And it's, it's a good question, it's a good point, because Like this thing that Lung Paul says, like we relate to consciousness being in the brain or in the body. Mm -hmm. The body is in consciousness, not consciousness in the brain. Like I really like that sentence just because it, th it throws me off thinking for one. He says that and my mind goes like, huh? <laughs> and just that is cool, yeah? Mm -hmm. But then I started using it. Consciousness, I can see how our culture, our conditioning and everything we've learned, we do feel that consciousness is in the body and we identify with the body and so we have a sense that consciousness doesn't go beyond the body. However, what happens to those times where we're sitting somewhere, could be here, could be in, in, a, in a public place or something, and if you've got a little bit of self-awareness there, all of a sudden you sort of start noticing you're feeling a pretty strong emotion that actually right here and now has nothing to do with anything as far as I'm concerned. 
and then you turn around and you realize someone else is experiencing that, like anger. Has that ever happened to you? You're sitting somewhere and you sort of, you, it's almost like you're picking up on, you haven't seen anything or heard anything, but all of a sudden there's anger in the picture and you turn around and you realize there's someone really angry in the room. Has any of you noticed that? Some of you have. Some of you haven't. Consciousness is conscious. That's all you can say about it. And it's conscious of things that arise in it. Now we have six doors through which channels through which things arise. As the five senses and the mind, so the five senses, the eye, the, there's eye con seeing consciousness and all that through the organs. And then in terms of the mind is the way the mind is conscious of thinking, of experiencing emotions, memories and stuff. So those would be like sites for the eye, but they're the food of the mind organ, so to speak. And this is the six sense bases. Now the Buddha talks about sense consciousness a lot in the five khandhas, but then he talks about consciousness that is pure, that does not have an object, that is limitless, unbounded. And that is the unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, the unconditioned. Now we can take the Buddha's word for it, or Lumpur when he's talking when he's talking about it, or we can start investigating ourselves. And if if what our world is made of is the body and the and the brain and the the brain the the mind thinking and remembering and having emotions and stuff, then usually we don't we haven't experienced consciousness when it's not related to sense consciousness. That is our whole experience of it is through the six senses. And in the path that the Buddha is describing, the realization, the experience and the recognition of consciousness without an object is the perception of, is knowing the Dhamma. Knowing in our experience, like here and now, experiencing consciousness without an object, that is liberation. That is because you realize that this is not conditioned, this is not created, it's not tied to anything at all, it's completely free from anything that is conditioned, any sankhara whatsoever. So sankharas keep arising and ceasing in awareness, but awareness isn't any of them. And if we keep practicing putting them down and stepping back, not getting rid of them, just putting them down and stepping back and trusting consciousness, the consciousness part of being conscious of something, of a, of a sankhara, knowing a sankara. That's why it's so good to be able to follow something arises and stay with it until the end, until it ceases, because when it ceases, consciousness is still there, but the sankara has ceased. So we're practicing feeling comfortable, trusting awareness, trusting consciousness. And we're not just, okay, this has ceased, on to the next thing, and on to the next thing. We're actually teaching ourselves to stay with consciousness when something ceases, and that to realize 
it's just a habit, a frantic, desperate habit of just grasping the next thing and the next thing and the next thing so that our experience of consciousness is always consciousness of something. So if we intentionally come back and start asking ourselves, can I stay with this until it ceases and just let it cease completely and stay here and now and see what happens, you're training to notice cessation, to feel comfortable with cessation. In cessation, as you're paying attention to cessation, all of a sudden this you notice this consciousness, which is bright, luminous, infinite, and without. Eventually, you you know it. You just keep putting things down until finally you've put everything down. And that you cannot make a self of. If a self comes into that, you've thought again. It's a result of thinking. So in the light of that, Lumpur says, well, uh, so this is me, what I do when I play around with these things, yeah? So consciousness is not in the body, the body's in consciousness. So my first impulse is to think as consciousness as a, as a thing that's bigger than the body and the body fits in it. <laughs> that's how obsessed we are with making a thing out of it. And relating to infinity, we don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to do that. And if we try, then we try to make it something. So if the body's in consciousness, what does it mean? Does it mean there's this bag that's inside a bigger bag? Well, how, how big is the bigger bag? Well, it's about this much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> What if it's bigger than that, and it actually includes you in there as well? And then you realize how the tricks we fall for, because then there's this bag, this bag is me, even if consciousness is bigger, this is my bag. And then the notion that in my consciousness, they're all of your bags too, I'm going to, well, let's not go so far, it's kind of invading their space. (laughs) (laughs) This is how screwed up this kind of thinking is. (laughs) Yeah. Because we're still relating to it as self. Then another way of relating to that is like, okay, consciousness is right here and now. It knows things that arise and cease in the present. Now, how do I know this body? If I don't fall for this one unit of a bag that's called, then this is mine. Like in school, when they give you your lunch pack, this is yours, this is yours. How do I know the body? So this, this is a perception of this bag, me. How do I know that I have a body? Well, because you told me so? Well, that's not knowing, that's you told me so. I look in the mirror, well, that's seeing. Well, I can feel it, well, yeah, that's touching. And you come back to, I only know the body because I can see parts of it, not the whole bit. Like I can't see my own eyes, I can't see the back of my head. I can't see a lot of it, actually, but there's, there is what I see about it, so I take that, that's one bit. But I don't see it all the time. If I do this, then I don't see the body. Does it mean I don't have one? <laughs> that's so we, we notice that when you don't see the body, but I still feel it, so I know it's there. And you realize it's almost like you're keeping track of something on radar screens. And so I've got a radar, say this is producing signals and it, something bounces back and it tells me that Richard's still in the room. Smith, that is. 
And then he leaves the room and goes around the corner so this radar doesn't pick up on it. But I can just switch on the CCTV and I see him here now. So I can keep track of him wherever he goes in the property because I've got all these different systems and six of them kind of cover it, yeah? The six senses. And so you realize you only know the body because what you know of it comes in on these six sense bases. We either we see some of it or we hear some of it. We smell it. I definitely do if I don't wash. <laughs> Even if I do wash and it's a scented soap, I go, oh, I smell so good today. <laughs> Whatever. We smell it. We taste it. We experience the body through taste. Not that we're tasting the body and eating it, but we experience it through taste and through touch, whether it's touching through the skin or just sitting here and feeling proprioception inside the body. That's how we know the body. We only know it because we're experiencing. Our experience of the body comes in through sight, smell, sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch. If you take these away, how could you tell you've got, there is a body there? How could you tell I have a body? There wouldn't be one. There's no way of saying there is one. And then we take all of this and we create out of... Because that's really... All you can tell is that there is sight. And so we take these experiences and out of that we conceive of the body and then mine, the body. But even this notion of the body, when you look at it, what is it? We create an image, but that's sight again, from what we look, we see from our bodies, other bodies, the mirror, what we see in the mirror and stuff, we create this notion of what my body's like. I've got a very clear idea of what my back looks like. I've never seen it. I've seen a reflection of it in the mirror. I've seen other people's bodies. And then I can touch it and so I form some sort of image of what my back is like, but I've never seen it. But I have a back, definitely. I created this notion of I have a back. And so we put, we cobble together one thing out of information that's coming on these five channels. And that's not creating something, I don't know what is. <laughs> so that's actually so now I think of this when think of that when Lompo says consciousness is not in the body, the body is in consciousness. Meaning our experience of the body our experience of seeing, smell, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching arises in consciousness. Okay. And that's less of a thing where consciousness becomes a big bag in which the smaller bag is. It's something different now, yeah? And it makes much more sense. If the experience arises here and now in the present, and the consciousness is in the present. I can have memories about the body as well. So then these images of the body come into the sixth sense door, the sixth way of connecting with the world through memories and thoughts and stuff. All of this is arising here and now in consciousness. And then that statement, the body's in consciousness, makes complete sense. So what is consciousness? And it's a not that I'm not trying to get an answer to the question. I'm I'm throwing all of this 
into like the body and the relationship to consciousness is not just a visual thing anymore, which is mainly what how we relate to bodies. All of a sudden, the body means experiencing the body through the five senses, and that arises in consciousness. So, what is consciousness? Knowing. Knowing. It's knowing here and now. <coughs> and then ignorance would be experiencing what's happening here and now in consciousness and misconstruing it and creating something out of it that's not actually there and taking that for reality. And that's how ignorance is the source of suffering. We make a mess and then we jump into it. <laughs> or we can watch it happen, but we can still not see this creation of the body out of these informations that come in through the senses and go, okay, yeah, well, it's actually useful to have a sense of relating to the body like that for some purposes. But not always. So you can all of a sudden, get, like, personality view, part of it is this view of the body that we have as a bag, a being, a unit. It can be useful, so we use it when it, but we use it with awareness. And then when you come back to it, you know that that's just one way of looking at it, the reality is that it's actually what? An experience in the present moment. That's really all we can say. So now I'm going back to thoughts and emotions and stuff. You can't localize them, can you? Now that we kind of have this awareness that's here and now, what is especially now, awareness knows what's arising right now, or existing or ceasing. And so there's not just the body, there's also thoughts and emotions and feelings, memories. Do they have a location in space? If we say they have a location in space, it's most likely we're coming to this body as a bag that's here and now. And all the memories and emotions and thoughts go on inside this bag here. But that's not the case. In terms of being now, here, I can't tell where all of this is, actually. So then consciousness is something that's open and sensitive, and something arises in consciousness and we can know it. This is arising in consciousness. So if a mood arises, I can't say it's in the body, I can think it and perceive of it as arising I can feel it in the body maybe, but an actual thought or, an, or a feeling, an emotion, a memory, where, where does a memory arise? I know it arises, but I can't tell where, I can't tell where it comes from. And then, if it's not self, it's just arising, ceasing, and there's consciousness, and I can know it. So why should I only be aware of my thoughts and my emotions, if they're not self? But they arise. And you can, suppose you tell me, now you can know here now, some feeling or memory arising. And it's also not self. And this is, this is where things start opening up a little bit, and you realize, well, if I'm not obsessed with identifying with this all the time, and putting a big black line around it, and noticing only what's mine, and never mind the rest of the world, 
and you put all of this down, then you're suddenly opening up a bit to, well, how much of this stuff is mine? When I say I feel anger arising, how do I know it's mine? How do I know I'm not picking up on anybody's anger? It could be in this monastery, it could be in Ottawa. I mean, the, if consciousness is not localized anywhere, but it's here and now, how do I know what's mine and what's not mine? And all of a sudden you realize calling anything mine or not mine doesn't make sense anymore. Because what you can know is whether it's arising present or not. That's what you can tell. It's, it turns around the whole relationship to existence, where you're not relating to the world through the six sense doors in terms of me and mine and others, as much as there is, or there's not. And that's all you can really tell. That's when we that's when we don't relate. That's, so we're not creating. You realize that if I if I say it's mine or not mine, I have to create that. I have to project that sense of ownership of it or belonging of it onto it, which is not actually there in terms of experience. All you can say is there is or there is an anger right now. So I'm just reflecting, yeah? Because yeah. reflecting like this, really, it's reflecting outside of the model of me and you. And you realize that it's an acquired thing and it's very, very powerful. We perceive everything from this model. So coming back to perceiving things like that, you have to actually work for it because it's not automatic. It's not a habit. The habit, I mean, it's really like particles of metal being drawn to the magnet thinking just keeps wanting to go back to me, me, me. So you're watching the body and you're so used to watching the body as me that okay, well if the body is not me, well then me has got to be this, the awareness that knows. Because we're so used to thinking from a me, but what if there isn't one? Then what are you going to say about your experience? All you can say is like, well there's a body and there's consciousness. And you realize you don't have to throw a me into there. And that's the beauty of it. Once, once you start catching that, then you can use thinking and just think to yourself a thought that presents here and now the way it is without it being anything else, not created into a me, a you. Really letting it be what it is. And that's it's very, it's very liberating. <coughs> Cultivate that. I mean, really, really indulge in this. Because the more you do that, the more you keep coming back to, well, what is this in consciousness here and now? It's this. And it can be whatever. It's the body. It's sight. It's sound of the fan or my voice or whatever. Smell of the drink or, or no smell. Also to notice that there's not always something there, sometimes there isn't something. There's thinking, there's absence of thinking. There's seeing, there's absence of seeing. Hearing, absence of. And then you start realizing that you're actually watching all of that. If you keep coming back to, but I know, now we can know, there is consciousness, you're knowing right now. There's consciousness of the present, 
So consciousness is definitely here. And what is there in consciousness right now? Well, there's sight. There's sound. There isn't any kind of smell. There isn't any kind of taste. Maybe a very kind of slight background bitterness in the mouth from saliva and whatever. Sweetness a bit too, there's a bit of a mixture, so yeah, okay, there's taste. There's touch in the body and also a slight, a bit hot and sticky, a bit cool from the fan, there's a bit of a mixture, so there's touch. And you notice how you can, you're kind of noticing that there is this in consciousness now. So for example, now there isn't smell and any smell. And then something happens and smell arises and you could go, ah, there's smell in consciousness. And you just kind of start relating to the whole experience. There's thought, there's, there's a memory or there's no memory, there's what is the state of the mind, the mind is awake or the mind, there's dullness, there's this and that. And you keep, every time you turn to this, you keep looking at it in terms of what it is, what is it here and now? in awareness, and you realize that whatever you're looking at that's changing, that's different, there is, there isn't, it's big, it's small, it's strong or weak, or it's nice or not nice, or whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant, it keeps changing. But what's there all the time looking at change is knowing, here and now. And that starts to become what you come back to, because it's the only thing that's always here, is now, knowing. Whatever you know changes, but the knowing is always here. So that we're starting to cultivate this relationship to it and starting to relate to all this experience in terms of this is what it is right now, rather than me or mine or I want or I don't want. So it's selfless, really? It is. It's, it's kind of knowing, knowing it as it is, rather than in terms of me or mine, wanting or not wanting. And then little by little, you, you sort of more and more kind of get disinterested in the, whether what I'm knowing is blue, red or black, or big or small, or even nice or not nice, suffering or happiness. Even suffering and happiness arises and ceases. And you, you stop being happy or being unhappy, because consciousness is there, this consciousness of happiness. The consciousness isn't happy. Knowing it does, isn't happy. Knowing just knows happiness arising, ceasing, and what happiness feels like. Strong happiness, light happiness, subtle happiness, explosive happiness. Whatever it is, it's still characteristics, but at the end, you know it for what it is. And the knowing is just knowing something that arises, changes, and ceases sadness and suffering, or sorrow, or grief, as well. You can lose a relative, go through the whole thing of them being good health, losing their health, getting whatever kind of disease or no disease, just curtains, one day they don't wake up, or they... And then you can, here and now it's like this. And then noticing emotions come, it's natural. We had relation, we related to people, we sort of appreciation, happy memories, sad memories, bad memories, 
and you notice that it's just conditions changing. When, when these people are alive, you relate to them in a certain way, and then all of a sudden they die, and these, all these things, all of a sudden you look at them in a different light. You're really grateful about the good things that you, do, you did, and you really regret the, things, the bad things that you did, especially if you didn't have a chance to ask for forgiveness. They're the same things. I had those memories when this person was alive, and I didn't really care about them. Now that the person's dead, these, I look at these meanings, at these memories differently. Those are called conditions changing. With different conditions, different feelings, different perceptions, different emotions. So you're not judging what's happening. You can still feel all the same thing, experience life with all its richness and all its diversity. But all of a sudden it doesn't become so important what all of that is, because you realize it's all changing and conditioned and it's only what it is unless I add something in on top of it. Like you can realize that a, a bad memory, something that we may have done in the past, that we regret, yeah, that wasn't good. And as a memory, it's not a pleasant memory. And that can be all it is, and you kind of let it come. It's a memory, it comes with a feeling, and if you just leave it, it ceases. But most of the time we don't like unpleasant, unpleasantness. So the memory comes up and we f put a bunch of guilt on it. I shouldn't have done it, I wish I didn't, because we're trying to kind of wrench away this unpleasant feeling out of the picture. I should have done it otherwise. And, uh, but actually you can also just let a memory which is unpleasant to rise and cease. Consciousness is not unpleasant. Consciousness knows unpleasant is like an unpleasant feeling is like this. It's impermanent too. And it's part of suffering. It's part of everything that arises and ceases. And you realize you're grateful for good memories and you other feelings come up with different kinds of memories, gratitude, happiness, and you can still sit here in terms of consciousness, experience all. I mean, I talk about a deceased relative because it kind of, I experienced that. My mother passed away a year and a half ago, and I happened to be in southern India with Lumpur in an extremely quiet place. We were the guests of this delightful couple who had a house. They're retired, they have a house on the top of the hill at the end of a road in a national park. And some the beyond the tea gardens, and they're really undemanding. They're just absolutely delighted to have two monks in their house. Ask nothing from you except the permission to feed you in the morning, give you tea in the afternoon, and if you, if you have time to chat, fine. But if you want to be on your own, fine. And that I was there for two weeks, and on day two or three, I get the news that my mother died, which I was expecting sooner or later, but. So I had all this time to sit with it. It was the evening, I said goodnight to Lompol, went to my room. About 45 minutes later, it's still not very late, about 8 o'clock in the evening, 7.30 I think, my sister, elder sister gives me a call saying the doctor really says it's a matter of hours, probably not days, but at the most a couple of days. And so don't bother coming, you won't make it on time, just stay there, look after Lompol, I'll keep you posted. So I kind of I went in, knocked on Lumpa's door and said, Oh, Lumpa, by the way, sounds like mom's on her way out. And uh, because he's met her and everything, so I figured I'd let him know. I go back to my room, 
and I kind of sitting there, very simple room, this beautiful window with a view out on the valley. It's getting dark. The sun sets behind there, so the whole Indian subcontinent with this kind of layer of dust in the air. You've got a bit of altitude, so you can kind of see it. And colors losing their pigments and just becoming shades, and then it's night. There's moon, there's stars. And I'm just sitting there, really. I lost my, my birth mother died when I was three. I have no memory of it. So as far as I'm concerned, this was the first time I'm losing a mother. <laughs> In terms of knowing what the experience is, yeah? Sounds like, so my, this is my mother who's been around my whole life. My stepmother, called her my mother. She's been around my whole life. She's always been there. And now she's going to not be there anymore. I don't know what's, I don't know this. I don't know what to expect, I don't know what to make of it, I don't know is it going to be in two hours or in three days that uh, I'm going to get the call or what? I have no idea what this experience is unfolding is going to be. I have no idea how to relate to it. I can prepare, I, could, I prepared for it, I went to see her at the hospital, spent two weeks with her, all kinds of things, but that doesn't prepare you for the moment that the call is going to come and you're being told she's passed away now. I don't know what feelings are going to arise. I can think, maybe that's all thinking. I don't know. And I was really curious. So I sat there for a bit, just... Here I am sitting. There's awareness, there's consciousness. And in consciousness there's this thought. Mom's dying. Things happen inside, emotions start coming up, even puzzlement, sort of emotions that I'm not very used to, like, like a big sense of question, but not knowing what the question is, or, yeah, not knowing what's going to happen, just sitting there going, this is what not knowing is, the experience of not knowing is like. I literally don't have a clue what's going to go on. And then I went to sleep, and I got woken up by the phone at about midnight, I think half past twelve. My sister calls, sort of all teary and whatnot, and said, ah, oh, we were with her, and then we all in the room, and she was kind of describing, so... She was describing what happened, my father, my uncle, my mother's brother was there, and my two sisters, and she was just describing how each of them were there differently, according to their sensibilities, their personalities, all of that. And then in come the nurses saying, excuse us, do you think you could leave the room for a short while? We need to kind of take care of the, you know, the mother, kind of make her comfortable, turn her around a bit, or and take the vitals, blood pressure, temperature, this, that, the other. So, okay, they leave, they go down to the cafeteria. My uncle and younger sister come back up, they were chatting for a while, and then they come back, go by the nursing station, so how's it going? Oh, everything's perfect, <clears throat> everything's normal. So they go into the room and my uncle goes right back to where he was, sitting by my mother's right side. Her hand was still there and he starts talking to her like he just was talking to her before. And after a while he realizes she's not breathing anymore. And she says it to my younger sister, 
And she looks, and they go out to get the nurses, and the nurse comes back, checks and sees that, yes, and that's when my, my I guess, I mean, this, I'm, this is what she's telling me on the phone, yeah? So she's telling me this story, and I'm sitting there, really paying attention to the fact that here I am in India, hearing a voice on the phone that's telling me this. And all these images come, because I know the room. So, but I'm really trying to be aware of it here and now, what is this? This is sound, these are, they bring up perceptions and thoughts, and these things bring up, anyway, the whole thing goes on. And I'm just trying to be, relate to it in terms of, in awareness, in consciousness, here and now, what is happening? Trying to be really open to it, so I'm not trying to be aseptic and say, no, I'm going to be this kind of really rational observer, because then I'm kind of, I don't want to shut away the emotional part of all of that. So the best way I found is really saying, so here, this is consciousness. What is arising in consciousness here and now? And then tears started coming after I put the phone down. And there was no way I didn't sleep. I just sat there looking out the window, experiencing grief. But then again, until dawn, and then at 8 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock, I went to see Lompa, told him the, king, the call came. But those, those few hours were incredible for me. Because I sat there, and when you, when you develop the routine of going through these six sense doors, that's what I was doing as well. As I was experiencing all of this, is what is this in terms of the six senses? Sitting feels like this. Breathing is like this. Sight is the darkness out in the night with just these shadows of mountains and stars and whatnot. There is again no particular smell or taste or sound really, just night, night, nightlife sounds and very little. And then there's this massive stuff going on on the level of the mind and memories. So I'd sit there. Sometimes my eyes open, sometimes my eyes close and I just sit there, breathing in, breathing out. And then the memory would come up of mum. And sometimes it would be a really nice memory and I'd just feel so good. And so this experience of mum who just died completely dominates consciousness. It's just such a big thing. Yeah? There are very, very little stray thoughts about anything. It's just this. And then the memory arises. It's a happy memory. I realize I, there's a really intense feeling of happiness. And it kind of completely fills me, and I find myself smiling. And I'm just letting it be, but just noticing this is what it is. And then that ceases slowly. I'm not doing anything to it or trying to hold on to it. Just like this is a really, really pleasant memory. It feels like this, quite intense. I mean, it's, it feels very enjoyable. And then slowly it kind of ceases. And now there's consciousness without. This has ceased, and consciousness is here now. What is there? Back to just sitting, breathing. And then a sad memory comes up, and I start crying. But I'm just sitting with it, so this is what happens, this is grief. Learning that someone died, and all, all of a sudden this rush of memories come in, like, a, like an absolute avalanche. 
mom just passed away and then everything associated to mom starts tumbling down on me in terms of thoughts and memories and emotions I spent the whole night just sort of like So there was grief, but I wasn't sad. There was joy, but that didn't make me happy. I really put my intention in knowing. I want to know what it is, what happens. In, this, in these circumstances, being mom, mom just died, what is happening now? And it, for three days, anytime I was on my own in my room, I would just sit there and there's nothing else but mom there. And then after three days, I mean, you see these things can only sustain themselves so much. They're also conditioned. And after three days, all of a sudden, all this, it wasn't all about mom anymore. It would start being about other stuff too. And it was interesting to watch that too, because you feel like you're doing the right thing. It's sort of right filial piety to think of mom, she's just passed away. And then three days later, you're thinking about whatever, popcorn and uh, <laughs> I don't know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> and I could see how there's something inside that doesn't really want to let go of all these thoughts about mother and just noticing it and not following it but noticing it and knowing that if I followed it I would probably start feeling guilty because I'm this is how I this is how you grieve for your mother thinking of whatever <laughs> But that would be thinking. That's not actually what's happening. What's happening is just this, this sense of maybe you should keep thinking of her. That's a thought coming from where? I don't know, conditioning, you name it. But just noticing it but not following it. And so there's an incredible wealth of emotions and thoughts and memories that come up on a, in a moment like that that are not necessarily so noticeable, so strong, so powerful in daily life. So it was a very, very special experience. But always coming back to consciousness was an absolute gem in this experience. So if I think to myself, well, what is it like losing a mother? I was like, wow, <laughs> it's a wow experience. There's everything. I can't say it's sad, I can't say it's happy. It's just like there's such a wealth of stuff going on. And I'm really happy, I felt extraordinarily grateful that the practice of the Dhamma and reflecting, and very much thanks to Lumpa's style of reflecting, has brought me to this point where I can actually experience the passing away of my mother as a gift in Dhamma. But if you were there, uh, present at that place, yeah. this, uh, that, would that ha have happened? How can I know? <laughs> 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 but with everybody around, and you will be panicking. I can think. I can think about it. Yes. yes. <laughs> you you ask me the question, so I can start thinking about it. But all I can give you are thoughts. I'm creating those. I don't know. But what I know is that I, I wasn't there with all the people around. I was in this very quiet place in India, and this was the experience I had. And I was grateful for it. I was grateful that I was a monk. I was grateful that Lumpur was there. I was grateful that I was in a quiet place. I was grateful that I had visited her recently. I was grateful... I would have liked to be in there. I would have liked to be in there for my relatives. She died, the body went to the morgue. 
And they didn't really know what to do and what do you do with the body in the morgue? Do you visit it? Not? Do you kind of burn it quickly or leave it there and acknowledge the fact that she's dead for a few days? Or They didn't even know what to do with it. I asked my younger sister to come up with some sort of, bring out a Buddha Rupa, put it in front of the coffin, get some sort of flowers. So she got a winter something that resists cold. It's a very beautiful little pot. And I asked her to write on the pot the translation of the Buddha's Anicca Sankara. Uh -huh. All things are conditioned. What is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. And in cessation there is peace. And I wanted that to be there for them, because I couldn't be there to talk about it, to remind them of it. But I thought that if they, if they see that in cessation there is peace, that may be something that reminds them that there's not only grief. Grief is an emotion, but generally the cessation is peace, even if they don't understand it. They sort of plant a seed there. It's like, peace? And just even thinking of peace, it brings some sort of perception of peace into the heart. I wanted to, that's all I could do. I wasn't there. So I don't know how I would have reacted or anything, but I know what did happen. And I treasure that experience. But again, I'm, very, I'm really, really grateful that I was able to come back, to live it, and keep coming back to consciousness in terms of what can I know that's arising now in consciousness in terms of this experience. Sitting on the edge of a bed, looking out a window, breathing. The body feels like this, 47 years old, still feels really pretty healthy, a bit of aches and but not much. That's on the physical side, and then in the mind, there's this thought, mother just died. And the emotions that come with it, and it keeps changing. So the whole night I was there for the from midnight to eight in the morning, just sitting, watching the watching the unfolding and the change in all of this. So it's really it's really it's really good to come back to consciousness in terms of the, 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 the base you come back to from which you consider the world. So try that exercise of yes, thinking intentionally, because it really opens a door to an absolutely to wonders. Maybe we should uh, leave it at that for today. I think they're going to be having evening puja in about 20 minutes. Thank you. asking myself in the middle of the night, experiencing grief, like just standing there. I, I wasn't sobbing, but the, the whole waterworks were going, really. You kind of wonder how, how, much so much, how come so much water can come out of your eyes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, 
am I sad? Am I grieving? And I couldn't say so. There is grief. This is sadness. This is the experience of loss of a dear, a dear one. But I couldn't say that I was sad. I wasn't. This is sadness, but it doesn't make me sad, grieving, or anything. It's really interesting. You have cultivated so much mindfulness. It's here and now. <laughs> it's true, it's the result of... I, I don't know if I could have done this five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. But this is the result of practice, and it all starts with coming back to consciousness here and now. I didn't know that I would be able to do that. That was part of the questions I had at the beginning of the night when my sister called, saying it's just a few more hours. I was like, how much am I going to discover that Dhamma and practice has helped me? Or I'm going to feel like I, I really need to do a bunch more to be able to handle the loss of a loved one. I, even that I didn't know. It was kind of a, a revelation. So I had a lot of gratitude to the practice for, because it prepares you for this. It really does. And in, in a way, what's surprising is that if you had asked me how I imagine that I would like you asked what if you had been over there when she died, I don't know. But if I had to imagine how I would have how will you deal with your mother's passing away when she does? Well, I don't know, but I'm not sure. I can say I feel prepared. Maybe I am, but I'm not, I don't have that certainty. That's probably what I would have answered. Because practice, like when it comes down to simple things, it is really simple. It's putting out those 32 parts on the floor, intentionally thinking, I am a Soko, or I'm whatever. And this, these are just such simple exercises. But we do them regularly and keep coming back to them, what they, how, they can, how they prepare the mind. And something, when a big and rich experience comes around, kind of, it's surprising. It really is. So it helps to put the space around mm -hmm. what is arising, yeah. whatever the emotions. Yeah. Between the emotions. Yeah. Did the Lompos say anything to you? Oh, plenty oh. of things. Why don't you remember? <laughs> 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 One of the most beautiful things when my daughter died was that everything stopped. Like, I just found my mind went very. Like, things would come, but it would be like one thing at a time, yeah. and it was just like. I loved being awake at night because there was nothing else going on. It was mm. quiet, and it would, I would just sit there. Yeah. It was for a long time. Yeah. Mm. I mean, not all the, the proliferation and the silliness and the things that you, you know, that you scattered. I would normally, in the scattered way, think about in the sub level. It was just gone. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, this kind of experience <coughs> pushes everything out of the picture for a, yeah. for a short period, for a few days. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and this brings up memories because my father passed away very suddenly. Yeah. And I was on a course and whatever, and I got this call saying that <coughs> visited us one week before and that he was admitted to a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And didn't take much because he was in good health. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I got home. The first thing I see is his body. Mm -hmm. The whole world stopped. Yeah. And I think I collapsed onto a chair. Yeah. And then a realization, I didn't have any practice at all. <laughs> but the realization came to me that he's gone, he's not suffering, but we are suffering. After that, my mind cleared. <laughs> That's a good realization. That's true. In Thailand once, it was funny because one of the first funerals I went to, I think, I forget who, maybe it was at the funeral or about a funeral that had just happened, but one of the one of the Kubajans came by and just mentioned in passing that all these ceremonies we did, we say chanting for the dying, making merit for the deceased and all of that, they say, they're, they're, they've moved on already. <laughs> all of these ceremonies we do is not for the dead, it's for the people who are still behind. <laughs> like like that's what you just mentioned, it's true. person like so you knew that your mom was kind of like um, dying yeah so did have you kind of uh, advised your sisters like that moment like if that moment comes anything to do no it's too big it's too big a thing to really uh from. Well, yeah, you can just say a few words and it's going to mm. ser serve them right at that moment. So we spoke about death and stuff like that, and I just speak it in terms of how I relate to it. But I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't think of any advice ahead of time because I kind of was as in the same boat as they were in the sense that I had not yet experienced my mother's passing away. So what advice could I give them about it? And I knew, I knew that I was going to have had all these considerations, like trying, just trying to be aware of the fact that mother is dying. I mean, she had cancer and all of that, so it was not very difficult to imagine, but in terms of what we do and as in practice as monks, is also keep reminding ourselves that I'm going to die, what's that going to be like? And I, that's what I do sometimes, I just sit there and imagine my death in every kind of way possible. I could die now, just a blood clot pops in my brain. I, a blood clot could pop in my brain and then I'm like a vegetable for the next 30 years before I die. I could get run over it by a truck, I, I mean you name it, all kinds of things happen. And there's not so much about what's likely or not likely as much as like something, one way or another, this body is going to come to an end. That is a certainty. When and how, I don't know. So if I want to think about death, it's like that's one way of thinking about it, and just bring up that idea and watch what comes up with it. What kind of emotions, perceptions, warm, like, well, maybe you better put a bit more time into practice, <laughs> so that it's a good reminder. 
or regrets or fear. I used to imagine a few years ago the Chinese sort of, it's such a huge country with an enormous population. And because it's a communist country, they're keeping everybody inside, but that's going to change. So I'm imagining what if it happens during my lifetime and then Chinese invade the rest of Southeast Asia and they just need space to expand, yeah? Maybe they come into the monastery and stick us on, all on they impale us on, on wood and the beautiful sala in Rathawan becomes the office of the local chief lieutenant or something, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter the scenario, there's just whatever the imagination can come up with. It is one possibility, one way or another, and this would be death. It could be a painful death, and that used to really scare me. The idea of some, probably because I have these notions of what the Chinese, what some Chinese did in Tibet to the Tibetans, is horrifying. Am I ready to die a death like that and kind of... Okay, consciousness. <laughs> no, I wasn't back then, and now I work with it, and I try to just sort of... It sort of really drives home the point that this is samsara, and brings dispassion into the picture, and just reminds you and reminds you again and again of the fact that we will die. My father will die, my sisters might die before me, my nieces and nephew might die before me, like anybody, healthy or sick, young or old, might die before me. And if you keep remembering this, because it's reality, then when you're on a course and your father, who was healthy a week ago, all of a sudden is dead, you go, okay, so it's happened actually. It's not a surprise. It's like, oh, so this is how it happens. And you can come back to, oh, it's like this now. And you're right, you're right there with Dhamma. When my daughter died, Arjun Sona said to me, she died in an accident yeah. at 29, and Arjun Sona said to me, why are you surprised? <laughs> Which was quite <laughs> true when he said it, you know. but it was actually yeah. uh, pretty profound. Yeah. It was free. Yeah, it cuts, it through, cuts through a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But why are you surprised? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I do think we need to go. Moment.